Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Lord, we do praise you because you are our Father, you are in heaven. We thank you, Lord, that your name is hallowed, your name is holy. And we come here this morning to praise your name, to lift you up. Lord, despite all of the junk that's going on in our lives and in this world, we stand now to proclaim that you are God, that you are Lord, that you are good. And we trust in you despite the things that are going on around us that are challenges. Lord, we pray that your name would be holy. We pray, God, that we as a church would be caught up in a groundswell of delight and worship in the glory of God. We pray, Jesus, that your glory and your name and your fame would be our utmost desire, that we would delight in you above all else, that, that we would be a people who, even when we're in board meetings or sitting through a soccer practice or whatever, would be people who in our hearts are delighting in Christ and have our minds fixed on eternal life where we will worship him forever. And so, Lord, teach us how to savor your glory more. And, Lord, we, we uh, praise you that your name is hallowed. We do pray that your kingdom would come here on earth. God, we pray that through our lives during the week that, that you would use us to extend your reign and your majesty into all the places that we go. We pray, Lord, for the work of foreign missionaries around the world that we support, that you would strengthen and encourage them today as they take your glory and your message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Help us to be Christians who have an outward focus, who have a kingdom mindset, who are concerned for the work of God in other churches who are concerned for the work of God in our neighborhoods. I pray, Lord, save us from a privatized faith. And instead, God, give us a vision for your kingdom coming. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. We pray that you would meet our needs. Lord, uh, we, we pray for this, this uh, meeting on Tuesday about the building project. We pray, God, that you'd meet our church's needs. Uh, we're in New England. There's snow. We need facilities to meet in. And so, Lord, this is what we need to be able to proclaim your name. So we pray, Lord, you'd meet our needs as a church. And God, we pray that you would meet the needs of individuals in the congregation. It seems, Lord, like uh, in your sovereignty, you've uh, allowed many in our congregation since December and January to go through some real trials. I want to pray, Lord, for all those in our congregation who are struggling with cancer or other diseases. Lord, for Tony Marsico, for Connie Wagner, for the Nelsons, Jalmer and Betty who've gone through surgeries. Lord, for... Um, Ann Burley, that she'd recover quickly. For Orville, that he would be healed. And Lord, the list seems to go on, and more than usual. And so God, we pray that you'd meet their needs. Lord, be with those who grieve, uh, who grieve losses. I pray, Lord, for marriages in our church that are going through difficult times right now. Lord, just meet the needs of our church and help us as a body to meet one another's needs. Pray for our sister Terry Tupper, who's uh, facing a situation without a home pretty soon. We pray, Lord, that you would provide a home for her, that you would move us as a church to meet her needs, that we would be a church that hears about one another's needs and meets them. God, help us to really be the body. And Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Oh God, we pray that as this church grows and thrives, we know that Satan has marked us that He has targeted us, that He would love nothing better than to see the work of the Gospel tripped up here. And so, Lord, we know that He prowls around the church like a roaring lion seeking whom He may devour. And He would love to make us into His image. He would love to make us roaring, growling Christians who would devour one another. And we pray, Lord, that we might be made into the image of Christ. 
that we might stand against the evil one. And so, Lord, protect our church from discouragement. Protect us from division. Protect us from false teachings and false prophets. Lord, protect us from all those different ways that Satan pulls out his textbook and tries to trip up healthy churches. And Lord, help us to be a congregation that stands in the strength of Christ. Rise up, Jesus. You are our champion. We pray that you would uh, defend us against all those who would seek to ruin the harmony and joy that we have in this congregation. And so, Lord, be at work in our midst. And now, to you be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Well, we invite any children here, kindergarten to second grade, to go to Children's Church. And uh, those kids who are in the kids' choir can go to kids' choir. Nice little snowfall, just to keep our whole paranoia with the weather thing going on. You never know what's going to happen. Well, would you open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 20? Luke chapter 20. It's on page 1041. It's almost tax season, isn't it? April 15th is coming. What an appropriate text for us. As Jesus is questioned about the propriety of paying taxes to Caesar. So we're looking at Luke chapter 20, verses 20 to 26 on page 1041. Let me just read this text for you. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be honest. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius whose portrait and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he said there in public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. I'd like you to visualize, if you would, please, where you are going to be, probably be, 24 hours from now. Can you see it in your mind? I mean, we don't know for certain, but can you see in your mind's eye where you'll probably be 24 hours from now? Will you be sitting in front of a computer, uh, checking your email and answering phone calls, getting ready for the day? Or maybe you will be... Uh, driving somewhere. You'll be in your truck driving to a job or commuting into Boston. Or maybe you'll be on an airplane flying to Chicago or New York. Or maybe you'll be trying to stay awake through English class. Or maybe, uh, maybe you'll be trying to stuff a three-year-old into a car seat so that you can go to the grocery store and get groceries really quick because there's a 10-15 swimming lesson and after that you have a lunch date. So you're rushing around in your day. Where will you be tomorrow, 24 hours from now? My guess is that wherever you'll be at, say, 9 o'clock-ish Monday morning is going to be a rather different place than you are right now. 
Because here, this is sort of a unique place. We gather together on Sunday mornings. We, in a sense, push out the world and our concerns for a moment. And we gather together to sing God's praises. And we study the Bible. And we talk about eternal truths. And then, 24 hours from now, we're in a very different place where we're going into committee meetings that my guess is they don't open with a word of prayer where you're going tomorrow at 9 a.m. And if the name of Jesus Christ is mentioned... It's probably in a different context with different connotations than we're mentioning Jesus' name today. So, so the question I really want to wrestle with today, and I think is coming out in this text, is how do we integrate those two realities? How do we who are, and this is, I guess is a constant challenge, but we want to talk about it today. How do we who are members of the kingdom of God function in the kingdom of this world where there are different obligations, different values, and where Christ isn't even acknowledged at all? I was talking to a guy uh, a couple weeks ago. I had breakfast with him, and he's a lawyer. He's in our church. And he was just telling me what it's like to be in a law firm. I, you know, how's business? And he, he said, it's so different. Uh, it, it's so driven by the bottom line and by money. He says, you know, when you're a lawyer, it's all about billable hours. And if you're not making your billable hours, that's it. You're gone. And, and so it's this relentless pursuit to make your numbers. And he was talking about some guy who was in his firm and had been there I don't know, 30-some years, I forget exactly the number, but a long time, and you think someone who had been there a long time like that would have uh, some kind of respect and protection, but for, I guess, a number of reasons, he hadn't been quite making his numbers the past two months, and senior management's on the phone with him. You know, not, how you doing, can we help you, but where's, show me the money. And if not, you could be gone, even after 30 years, and, of course, that's the world out there. So, when you're operating under that kind of of raw capitalism or, or whatever it is, those kinds of values, how do you go as a citizen of the kingdom of God into that kind of environment? How do you put those things together when they're so often diametrically opposed to one another? You know, what should we do? Should we as a church just sell everything, quit our jobs, go buy like 500 acres in Vermont and just make a commune, you know, and milk cows and live off the land and make our own clothes and Oh, maybe some of you are like, I'm in, Pastor. You know, just tell me, here we go. I'm there. I'm done. I'm ready to go. Uh, yeah. So do we just withdraw from the world and become like some new iteration of the Amish? How do we, how do we deal with this? Uh, where there's a kingdom of this world and yet we are citizens of the kingdom of God. And that's really, I think, what this text is getting at. Because, uh, as you know, if you've been here the last couple Sundays, this passage in Luke, we're in Holy Week in Luke, and Jesus has been battling over the issue of authority with the leadership in Jerusalem. Who's in charge? And remember, Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday like a king, and he clears the temple. And so it's like, who do you think you are, Jesus? By what authority do you do this? And so the question is, well, how far is his authority going to go? Is he going to challenge Rome? Who does this Jesus think he is? So it's in the context of this battle over authority, we get into the issue of the relationship between the kingdoms of God and the kingdom of this world. So let's look at the text. Verse 20. It says, Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be honest. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So they can't trip up Jesus in a direct confrontation. That failed. We saw that last Sunday. So now what they're doing is they're resorting to subterfuge and they're hiring some Guys who will pretend to be honest. These guys are going to come in and be like, oh, we're, we just want to know what you think, Jesus. But really, they're trying to apply him with some questions 
intentionally designed to make him say something that will get him in trouble. And so they come, and here's the question, verse 21. Look at this buttering him up. So the spies questioned him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right, that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So there's the butter up, there's the wind up, and then the pitch. Should we pay taxes? And that is a devious question. That's a, oh, I mean, they must have been thinking about this question in the back rooms for a couple of days. You know, they're all, all these scribes and priests are like, what are we going to say? And then like at 2 a.m., one of the priests says, oh, dudes, I got it! And they're like, what? Oh, we can ask him about taxation. Oh, you know, and then they, they praise God and they get this question ready to go nail him. Because think about it, no matter what Jesus says is going to be the wrong answer. He can't answer this question correctly. If Jesus says, no, we don't pay taxes to Caesar. The kingdom of God is here. I'm the Messiah and Caesar is done. Well, then it's a piece of cake. The Jewish authorities simply walk over to Pontius Pilate and say, sir, there's this guy you may want to know about in the temple who's telling people to stop paying taxes and he's preaching sedition against Rome. You may want to take care of that. And so Jesus is gone. But if, on the other hand, Jesus says, Oh yes, we must pay taxes to Caesar. We have to honor Rome. Well, then he's likely to alienate a lot of his followers. Because you have to understand, this tax that the Jews had to pay to Rome was very onerous to them. It wasn't a lot of money. What it was, was it was called a poll tax. And it was taken once a year. And every male adult had to pay a denarius. A denarius was about a day's wage. So think how much money you know, the average person makes in a day. You had to pay that once a year to Rome. So it wasn't a lot of money. It's not like it was going to break you. But it was just the principle of having to use their money to support a pagan, idolatrous, evil, corrupt government. And, and so this tax was a symbol for the Jews. It symbolized everything they were frustrated with in, in being underneath the oppression of the Roman government and all of its values that contradicted the values of the kingdom of God. So they're in this tension. So if Jesus says, oh yeah, everyone, we should support Rome, well then he's going to alienate what the uh, people believe to be his power base and the people are going to turn away from him and then they can arrest him. So either way, they're like, we got him. We have Jesus in a vice. He's caught between Rome and the opinions of the people. We have him now. This is it. And, and I was thinking about that vice grip. And, and that's really where we find ourselves as Christians. We feel caught in this vice between our responsibilities as Christians to stand up for God uh, and, on the other hand, our responsibility to this world where we have obligations, where we do have to pay taxes to a government where we may not agree with everything the government's going to do with our money. That's difficult. And we do have to, um, you know, if you're a teacher and you're in a union and you have to pay union dues and there's really no way not to be in a union but you don't agree with your union, you know, what do you do with that? Or if you're uh, in a family and you're a Christian in your family but by and large your family is not Christians and so when you get together with them there's a very different value system operating in your family. And so how do you honor and respect your family that's in some ways perhaps even hostile to your faith and yet also honor the kingdom of God? There are obligations there. And, and so we feel ourselves caught in that pinch that, that we've been talking about here. So, oh, they got Jesus now. He is trapped. Well, for any normal person, they'd be trapped. But Jesus, 
You can't defeat him in argument. He's, he's so awesome. His wisdom is so incredible. Look what he does here. Verse uh, 23. He saw through their duplicity. He knows that these guys aren't for real. He knows they're total posers, just trying to trip him up. So he says, show me a denarius whose portrait and inscription are on it. Now that there was a masterful move because it sends his opponents going into their pockets like, oh yeah, I got a denarius right here. Here it is. And then he's already busted them because like these guys really aren't it, struggling with whether or not to pay taxes to Rome. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to just whip Roman money out of their pockets. Like, oh, you guys are phony. So he just totally busts them right there. And, and so they pull out a denarius. And like I said, the denarius was that silver coin worth a day's wage that was the, the yearly tax. Now, archaeologists have found this denarius. Uh, that We know what it was. It was the denarius of uh, Emperor uh, Tiberius Caesar, who was the second emperor of Rome. He reigned from 14 A.D., to 37 AD, and I found a picture of it. I actually put a photocopy of it in the bulletin. So if you want to see the actual coin that Jesus would have held, I have a kind of crummy photocopy of it. Actually, it turned out pretty good, really. Nice little profile of Tiberius there. So if you look on the inside of the bulletin, there's the coin. That's the coin they would have showed Jesus. There's Tiberius Caesar. You see his faith, he's on the right. The inscription around the side in Latin is translated, the divine son of Augustus, who, who as you know, was the first emperor of Rome. And so uh, Tiberius was his stepson, who was later adopted by Augustus. And then on the left, that's a picture of Tiberius' mom, uh, who was seated on a throne like a goddess. And so it's all about you know, the, the divine status of the emperor. So another reason the Jews hated to pay this tax. Not only did they have to pay tax to a evil Roman Empire, but they had to use coins that proclaimed that the emperor was God. <laughs> and, oh, 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 you know, they have to pay this tax. It just goes against everything that they believe in. So that's the coin that would have been handed to uh, Jesus. And so Jesus looks at it, he says, whose portrait and inscription are on it? And they say, Caesar's. And then Jesus hits them with this one-liner. Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. I'll tell you what, in the history of one-liner comebacks, that's got to be one of the best one-liner comebacks. And just like that, they're done. He says, look, Caesar's picture's on it. Give to Caesar what is Caesar and God what is God. So somehow in a Solomonic kind of way, he, he finds a middle path through the two seemingly... Uh, inescapable options that they've presented before him. You, you know, when I read this story, and this will just show you how warped I am, you know what I thought of? I thought of that scene in Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know that movie? Famous scene, maybe you've seen the scene, where Indiana Jones, he's running through the streets of Cairo, and he's trying to, he's fighting bad guys. He's in fist fights and he's fighting bad guys all the time. And he's trying to catch his girlfriend who's been captured by the bad guys. And he comes into this big square, it's full of people, and all of a sudden the square empties. And on the other side of the square is this guy who's like an expert sword fighter. Anyone remember this? Okay, good. Thank, oh, good. I'm like, am I just in my own little world here? I, I am, but, you know, how bad is... And so he takes out his sword, and this expert sword fighter's like, Whoa, and he starts going... <laughs> spinning his sword around, and... Oh, how's Indiana Jones going to get out of this? He doesn't have a sword. This guy's an expert. So Indiana Jones kind of looks at him for a second, then just pulls out his revolver, <laughs> and goes, bang, and shoots the guy. And that's... The battle's over. And, and that's how, uh, that's what I felt like when I was reading this story. 
All right, we got him on taxation. There's no way he can get out of this. And Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar and God what is God. Bang. Next question, please. And, and everyone says, oh, that's, I love Jesus. I love Jesus. There's nobody like Jesus. There's nobody who argued like Jesus. There's nobody who was compassionate like Jesus. There's nobody who, who seemed to just cut through all the nonsense and evil and warpedness of the world around him and, and just could get to the truth of the matter. Nobody can do it like Jesus. Nobody was righteous like Jesus. Who else went through this dirt-filled world and came out the other side with not a stain on him? He's Teflon man. Nothing sticks to him. He's amazing. That's why I'm a Christian. Because I'm completely enthralled with Jesus. And I'll tell you, if, if you're struggling with the Christian faith and you get all kinds of questions, this is my, my advice. Just stay focused on Jesus. He's what it's all about. And you know, there's the church and there's issues and there's philosophical questions and those can go round and round. But, but ultimately, to be a Christian is to follow Christ. Now, I find that very easy in terms of my heart wanting to do that. I don't find it easy to do because I'm a sinner, but I find it easy to want to follow this guy because that's what Christianity is. But I want to really get into this little statement because it's loaded. Give to Caesar what is Caesar and God what is God's. Because I think getting back to the question of where are we going to be 24 hours from now, there's some wonderful insight here into how to do that. Because Jesus, in a sense, is addressing the people's misconception about how the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God related to each other. He was pushing back on how you know, religion and politics or Christ and culture went together, if you want to use sort of modern uh, ways of describing this tension that seems to exist. Because the Jews in Jesus' day, and even John the Baptist, as we studied, had what we might call a rather linear understanding of the relationship between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. And by linear, I mean that they believed that the kingdom of this world was going along, and then the Messiah would come, and he would overthrow the kingdom of this world, and it would come to a dramatic apocalyptic conclusion, and then he would establish the kingdom of God, and so this would end and that would begin. So that if you were to draw a picture, it would just be a straight line with a big explosion in the middle, and then God's kingdom kicks in. And that's what they were looking for. When you read a lot of the Jewish apocalyptic literature, it was this straight line from evil, boom, then the kingdom of God. And so when Jesus came, the big surprise was that he didn't teach that it worked that way. He started explaining that the kingdom of God was going to grow gradually, that it was going to come in subtly. It was going to be like a little seed that slowly grows into something. It was like a little yeast put into the flower. And so rather than the picture looking like this, what we find in the New Testament is that the picture of the relationship between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God looks more like this. It's kind of like, like that. So there's an overlap where they coexist for a while. And the kingdom of God begins, but the kingdom of this world doesn't go away in a poof. And so that's where we, we're right, I don't have another hand, look, right in there. <laughs> right in that overlap period between the first and second comings of Christ. We're in the already but not yet phase where the kingdom of God has already begun but it's not yet fully consummated. When Christ returns, that will happen. And the kingdom of this world is already defeated, no question. But it's not yet completely wiped out. 
And so that's where we are as Christians. We're in this, this overlap. It's a period of transition and tension. It's like being an adolescent. I'm not a kid, but I'm not an adult. You know, the PNS is signed, but the house isn't closed on. D-Day has come, but V-E Day is still to come. And so we're in this, this period as Christians. And it's a hard place to be. We're in the world, but not of the world. All those kinds of sayings. And this is a place of tension. This is a place of ambiguity. This is a place where there's complexity and there aren't easy answers. And, and so you say, well, what should I do Monday morning? And, uh, and I say, well, I don't have a three-step formula for you. <laughs> what? <laughs> no, I, I, what it takes is wisdom. To live in tension takes wisdom, not formulas. It's very, it's very difficult. Um, of course, we don't like tension. Who likes to be in tension? We always try to get out of tension. I have a tension headache. I take Advil. I don't like tension in my life. I want to get rid of tense things. If there's a tense situation, I want to get out of it some way or another. And so our tendency as Christians, when we wrestle with this dynamic between being caught between two kingdoms, which, by the way, are diametrically opposed to one another, is that we want to get out of it. But Jesus seems to be commanding us in this text. It seems to me the command is embrace the tension. You have to embrace the tension, which I don't want to do. He says you have to give to Caesar what is Caesar. You have to give to God what is God's. And how do I do that? I don't always know how to do that. And there's not a simple answer to it. But that's where we have to stay, is in that place of uncertainty and wrestling, because that's where God has called us now. Because the kingdom of Jesus hasn't fully come, and the kingdom of this world hasn't fully gone away. And so, embrace the tension. But we don't want to do that. We want to escape the tension. And, and there are different ways we try to get out of this tension and try to oversimplify the Christian life. And uh, I just want to think of two of them really quickly with you. But one of them I thought of is, you might say, one way of escaping the tension is triumphalism. Triumphalism is when you overemphasize the kingdom of God part. Where the way you live in the tension is you say, okay, we're just going to defeat the kingdom of this world. We're going to wipe it out. We're not going to render unto Caesar what is Caesar. We're going to beat Caesar. Uh, triumphalism says, I'm not paying taxes. No, 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 no. We're done with Rome. We're going to take over Rome. In fact, we're going to get a, a Christian emperor in Rome. That's going to fix it. We're going to get Christian senators over Rome, and, and we're going to change Rome, and we're going, to, we're going to protest, and we're going to join Spartacus, and we're going to lead a slave revolt against Rome. And th- that's how we're going to do it. It's, it's this triumphalism that comes in. Uh, you know, we're going, to, we're going to bring America back to Jesus. This is going to be a Christian nation. We're going to get prayer back in our schools. We're going to take back the House of Representatives and the Senate. Right? And, and Christians get wound up like this sometimes. That, that, you know, we're going to somehow, by political force, using worldly weapons, we're going to take over the culture in some way and make this a Christian nation. Of course, I have a question. Uh, is there such thing as a Christian nation? I, mean, I don't know. Something to think about. But... Are we really going to do that? Are we, are we just going to storm the culture and with the weapons of the culture take over the culture? Is, is that our call? And, and so that's a triumphalistic attitude. Triumphalism is Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane pulling out his sword when they come to arrest Jesus and just taking a swing at some poor guy. You're not going to take Jesus. The kingdom of this world is not going to... Yeah. And he fights back using the weapons of the world to stand up for God's kingdom. The problem, well, one of the problems with 
triumphalism is that it so quickly tends to get co-opted by worldly powers. Triumphalism, uh, it, it gets politicized. You see this all the time. And it gets politicized by liberals and by conservatives, by Democrats and Republicans. And so the church, rather than speaking the kingdom of God that is not of this world into this world, the church so easily just becomes a political tool. And, and this, is, this is something you see all the time. You know, it happens in liberal churches where the pastor stops preaching the Bible. And instead, every sermon is a political sermon. It's a sermon about deforestation or anti-globalization or anti-war and the enemy is no longer, I don't know, Satan and sin and evil. The enemy is now, you know, Walmart. And, and so that's how the sermons go. Uh, or, or you see it in Republican and, and conservative things where the church is, becomes uh, just part of, of a Republican demographic. You know, you, you talk about evangelicals today and it's become a politicized term. Like, who are evangelicals? Well, they're a major voting bloc within the Republican, you know, party. I'm like, wait a minute, I... I thought an evangelical meant believing in Christ and His Word and preaching the Gospel. So how is it that that's happened? And so a lot of people are like, well, I don't want to become a Christian because I'm not a Republican. It's like, well, <laughs> something's happened. And it's been politicized. Or even in our own homes, we can take this triumphalistic attitude into our homes. Maybe, like we said earlier, you live in a tension where you have people in your home who don't know Christ and there's a lot of people who are perhaps even hostile toward your faith. You know, what do you do? And a lot of times we can become triumphalistic, like, you know, by gum, they're going to become Christians, and I'm going to make them. <laughs> I'm going to twist their arms, and I'm going to trick them into coming to this event, and I'm, you know, we're going to bully them into the faith. And the problem is, you can't convert anyone in your family. There's only one person who can convert anyone in your family. Holy Spirit. That's it. He uses us in, in our witness, but, but sometimes we, we get this strong arm mentality toward the world. But you know, you look at the, gospel, the book of Acts and the Gospels, and when the church went out into the world in the book of Acts, they did not go out with placards and protests and revolutions. Christianity is not a revolutionary movement in the sense of a political violent revolution. I think it's a very revolutionary movement. And in some ways it's revolutionary in the way it's revolutionary, but that's another issue. But, but I'm saying in the traditional sense of a political violent revolution, it's not that kind of a movement. It's a different kind of thing. It's of a kingdom, not of this world. And so we have to always be aware of that triumphalism. Because, you know, the biggest problem in the world today, what is the biggest challenge facing our world? It's not war. It's not poverty. It's not AIDS. Even though those are huge problems that the church should be concerned about. It's not oppression. It's not genocide. It's not racism. The biggest problem facing the world today is that the wrath of God is coming. And the wrath of God against this world makes any of our world's problems look like a walk in the park. God is a holy God. We have rebelled against Him. And God has set a day of judgment where we will stand before Him. That's the biggest crisis facing the world today. And brothers and sisters, the church alone has the answer to that crisis, which is the gospel of salvation. And so whatever the church does, and I, I believe the church should be active in our culture, we must not lose the gospel at the center. Repent and believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins because God's judgment is coming, but there's reconciliation now. That's the message of the church. Uh, whatever else it does, that must stay in the center in the gospel. 
And so we have to be aware of triumphalism. We have to be aware of an idea that, that we as a church, our job is to take over the culture and to dominate it and to create a city on the hill. Like, I love the Puritans. You know, I love the Puritans. I love reading the Puritans. But, you know, this idea of creating a city on the hill, it was kind of doomed to failure. You can't create a theocracy on earth by the power of man. So, so that's one way that we try to get out of the tension. It's just like, rawr, we're going to take the culture. But there's another extreme, and perhaps this is the one we fall into more often, Another way that we break out of the tension, and instead of embracing the tension and render unto Caesar what is Caesar and God what is God, and, and using wisdom and discernment to figure out how you do both of those at the same time, the other way to break the tension is the opposite of triumphalism. It's privatism. Right? And so here is where, instead of our faith becoming a crusade, our faith withdraws like a sea anemone into ourselves. And, and it's very private. It's my private, personal faith. This is what I believe, and I'm going to heaven, and I know Jesus, and he helps me through the day. But, you know, my faith, it, you know, it's, it's, I don't take it to work, and I don't take it to school, and I don't take it to my family, and it, it doesn't affect politics, and it doesn't affect anything. It's just my personal salvation that I hold on to. And that's the other way that you can go. So that, so that faith doesn't have any impact in the world. And it's just a, a private thing. If, if uh, triumphalism is Peter taking out his sword and swinging at the high priest, Privatism is Peter a few hours later denying Christ three times. Aren't you with Jesus? Oh, oh Jesus, come on. <laughs> and he's denied Christ. He's retreated so much. And I think this is a challenge for us as New Englanders. I was reading some research uh, this week, some, some statistics. And I guess of Americans, uh, New Englanders apparently share their faith with others less than anybody else in the country. Uh, apparently, among believers, among Christ, evangelical Christians, the average is about 50% of those who would call themselves evangelical Christians actually encourage others in their faith. Uh, but among New Englanders, evangelicals, it's like 25%. So we're half the national average. And that's part of who we are. It's part of a New England characteristic. We're reserved. We don't go out with it. You know, big fences make good neighbors and all that stuff. And, you know, we don't just pop over to people's houses. We call first. We make an appointment. And, you know, we just we, we respect boundaries. And there's, you know, some good things to that. But I'll tell you what, it can't hinder the gospel. And it better not separate us in the church. And so we have to resist some of those things. And so we have to push ourselves. This is not just a privatized faith. Because, yes, the main thing the church has to bring to the world is the gospel of salvation so that people can come to Christ. But once I come to Christ, I'm a new person. And if I'm a new person, that means I'm going to relate to my family differently. And I'm going to have an impact. And if I'm a new person, I can't just turn out politics because politics is part of who I am as a person. And so I have to find ways to speak out about the fact that why did they take her out of the schools? And, and why is our nation going the way it's going? And so as a Christian, if I see poverty and injustice in the culture, I can't just ignore it because it's my private faith. And, and so you say, Pastor, you're talking out of both sides of your mouth. Yeah, it's a tension. I don't have a simple answer for how all of that fits together. I just know that, that we can't become triumphalistic and we can't become privatistic we have to render unto Caesar what is Caesar and God what is God and somehow simultaneously embrace this and live both out at the same time. It takes wisdom, it takes discernment, it takes the leading of the Holy Spirit because through that, God is going to use us as we go into those places. This is one thing I do know, is that wherever you're going to be tomorrow morning, 24 hours from now, is where you need to be. That's where you need to be. You, you don't need to be in a commune in Vermont. 
You need to be wherever you are with the relationships God has given you so that the kingdom of God can be interfacing with the kingdom of the world and we can be at that tension point as Christians learning how to be light in the darkness and salt against the decay yet without thinking that we're going to create a utopia, yet without withdrawing so that we become useless and, and just sidelined in the culture. So how do you put this together? I don't really know. But I do think, and I'll just close with this, I do think that we have a model in the Bible for a way forward of how to integrate this. And the model we have is the cross. I think the cross is the picture Because at the cross, Jesus rendered his life up to Caesar. He rendered unto Caesar everything that Caesar demanded. Jesus surrendered to this world with all of its injustices. He allowed himself to be mistreated and abused. He didn't fight back and he said, Peter, put your sword away. And Jesus allowed himself to be taken away in injustice. He embraced it and fully went into it. And yet, at the same time, as He poured His life out on the cross for our salvation, not only was He rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar, He was rendering unto God what was God's. And so, in that act, He laid the foundation stone for our salvation. It was at the cross that we have salvation. Through the cross of Jesus that we can be forgiven and have hope of eternal life. So the cross is that model. What is a cross? It's an intersection of two perpendicular lines that are not in harmony whatsoever. They're not parallel. They're not running together. They're going in opposite directions, but they intersect at the cross. And so it's at the cross that poured out crucified life that I think is is the way forward. And what that means for us is, well, Jesus said it the best, take up your cross and follow Jesus. I think that's how we do it, by taking up our cross. And so you've got to go to your family and just pour out yourself for your family. Let your life be poured out as a sacrifice before them. Go to the workplace and and be a sacrifice. No matter what they throw at you, respond in love. Give yourself in radical charity for those who are in need around you. We've got to look like a bunch of fools. That's what God is looking for. Holy fools who are willing to stand, not, not run away, but to stand in the face of it and just let ourselves uh, you know, be wounded and, and to be rejected by this world. I thought of uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and his concept of nonviolent resistance, of how he, he just stood there in the world and let them beat on him. <laughs> but he just kept saying the message. This is the way it is. And, and somehow through that picture of, of proclaiming the kingdom of God by dying to ourselves and serving others, God's kingdom moves forward and the world is there, but it all fits together somehow. So, so that's still vague, isn't it? But I don't have a formula for you. I, I just have a picture and I have a Savior. And perhaps I have a question to leave you with. And the question is this. What will it look like for you 24 hours from now to take up your cross? What will that look like for you? What does that mean? I believe if you can start to get an answer to that question, you'll find a way forward as we seek to inhabit the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world simultaneously.
And as we anticipate that one day there will be a victory, when the kingdom of God will fill the earth as the waters fill the sea. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for this challenging text that Christ has given us. And Lord Jesus, I pray that we would love you, that we would, we would believe uh, in you, that we would not shy away from the kingdom of God. And yet, Lord, we wouldn't disengage from the world either. Lord, give us wisdom as Christians how to take up our cross and follow you without being triumphalistic and without being cowardly and privatistic. Lord Jesus, I pray, use us to be pictures of the cross this week. Lord, I I pray that you would send out believers this week carrying crosses all over Boston. That people would see us carrying the cross before they hear us speaking of the cross. And Lord Jesus, that you would use us as we engage the world to bring the good news of Jesus everywhere. And until then, Lord, give us patience, give us perseverance. Lord Jesus, we need wisdom to know how to do this. And Lord, give us hope because we know that someday this tension will resolve. And it won't be because we did something, it's because you're coming back. And on that day, the kingdom of God will be established forever and ever. And so till then, Lord Jesus, help us to walk the path of the cross. We pray this in your name. Amen. So speaking of the cross, speaking of the center of our faith,